Thank you, guys. Good morning. It's so, it's wonderful to be back with you. I didn't know I was coming this time till a few days ago, and I'm so glad it worked out last minute to get to be here with my family at Sanctuary. I uh, got a lot to do, so I want to go right to the text pretty quickly. Um, this is a text that's been especially meaningful in my life and story, which I'll share more about later. When I saw this, this is where the lectionary was leading the broader church, capital C. I was especially excited because I feel like it's, it's very relevant to where we are in many ways. Um, just a bit of context before we read. This is the text where Philip, um, who's been preaching in Samaria, where there have been signs and wonders and healings and spirits are being cast out and all of these things that, especially for someone like me growing up in the Pentecostal tradition, like this is what it's all about, is the revival. This is the zenith. This is the this is the height of our existence right here. But as it turns out, um, this is not God's ultimate plan for Philip or for any of us is to camp out in the revival atmosphere, but to send him out. And Acts uh, 8, beginning with verse 26, let's look there together. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Let's stop uh, for just a moment and, and pray. Spirit of God, you are the revealer of all mysteries. We ask that you would reveal yourself. We ask that you would reveal the depths of the very heart of God, as well as that you would reveal and bring into light the depths of our own hearts. You would lay us open before the text and before one another in your presence. I pray very specifically in this service that you would remove any and all distraction and hindrance. I pray that if there would be any resistance to the way that you would want to surprise us. Um, Lord, I just pray this would be the kind of day where we lower our defenses, 
and that we allow you to kind of get in through the cracks, Lord, for as much as we try to build a, um, something seamless and sometimes a life that's so ordered and so coherent and so tidy that it seems to be almost impossible for you to get in, we just pray today you would get in past all our defenses and allow us once again to be surprised, allow us once again to be astonished, allow us once again to wonder that which the Spirit of God is doing in the world, and specifically that which the Spirit of God is doing through the gift of the other. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This text is is full of so many implications, especially when you think about Jewish law, and you know that someone like this Ethiopian eunuch would be considered just so deeply ceremonially unclean. Um, I don't want to be overly graphic, but the practice, of course, in antiquity is that if someone is going to work for a queen, often the requirement would be, because there would be, it's, a, it's a place of great affluence and power, that the man would be castrated, so there'd be no shot of him impregnating the queen, raping the queen, anything like that. So, incidentally, if you think you gave up a lot for your job... <laughs> Worked all week on that one. So, the but people would do this willingly um, for for the power that the office would afford, and for someone who would be part of the ancient Israelite community. um, Not only is this make you kind of ritually unclean according to the purity codes. But you're considered a sellout to your tribal identity because what this always meant is that you're going to work for essentially a pagan ruler, someone outside of Israel. So there's, there's all these ways that this would be an act of trading your identity. The law specifically forbids this practice. So Deuteronomy 23.1, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. When people ask me what my life verse is, this is always what I say. This is my life verse. I want to encourage you to commit this to memory. Because when you have a long, dark night of the soul, like this might be the verse that pulls you through. Stand on the promises of God. You know what I'm saying? Then it begins to tempt and taunt. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Just a beautiful, beautiful text. So, Deuteronomy is, is very explicit about this, is, is very graphic, and this is embedded into, the, into this early practice for the people of God, passed down from generations to generations. You, the, the, the law is preserved. What's interesting about how Scripture works, and I don't have time for like a mini lecture on this, but th- there's always this sort of dialectic, this dialogue between texts. This is the reason why, incidentally, I think it's never a great idea to... We do this thing often um, uh, called proof texting. If there's an idea that we want to back up from Scripture, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you can prove almost anything from Scripture if you stack up Bible verses. And the reason we have to be very cautious about this is that there, there is a dialogue between the text. And sometimes it's not as simple as, well, this is what I think, and I've got five verses to support it. Because we go to Isaiah chapter 56. So this is still Old Testament, where the prophet Isaiah gives us a beautiful vision of inclusion for these who are ceremonially unclean in precisely the way that Deuteronomy describes. And rather than being cursed, rather than being cut off, rather than not having a seat at the table with God's people, with God's assembly, um, you have these beautiful words of promise. So uh, Isaiah 56, verse 3, 
Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. And I really love these verses, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm seriously very moved by these. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls, listen to this, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So in Isaiah's vision, not only is there a place for the eunuch, it's not just a matter of coming in like some kind of a second-class citizen, but rather this proclamation that those who are now biology, they're unable now biologically to reproduce but they will be so well cared for by the people of God, they will have such a place of honor within the community that we will give them a legacy that would be better than if they had sons and daughters. They will remain, they will be established, they will be blessed. One of the things I find most intriguing about this text, by the way, is that for these eunuchs that are coming in now to this vision, to worship this God, that the one specific component of the law that they're asked to keep we do want the eunuchs now to honor the Sabbath. I just think that's fascinating. There's not the idea of like, well, since you broke this one rule, we need you to keep extra rules or whatever, but rather make sure that the eunuchs enter into God's rest. <laughs> make sure that they enter into this practice of consecrating a day where they cease from their labors and they're able to delight in God and delight in creation. That's the one requirement we have for the eunuchs that have otherwise been cut off. I mean, it's just an extraordinary text. All of this there together in the Old Testament, which I find so fascinating. But it, it culminates really with this story in Acts 8 where we have Philip who is a devout Jew like all the early Christians who come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the anointed one, who is now being called out of the revival, out of the big hype of the atmosphere where people are being saved and delivered and healed and all those wonderful things, to sit side by side, note that, to get into the chariot and to sit alongside a man who according to Philip's tradition and customs would be considered to be ceremonially unclean. All of these things that are so beautiful for me about this text. I didn't note until we read this earlier this morning that, that, just, that just that little phrase that when the eunuch wants to be baptized, it says that they went down into the water together. <laughs> There's something about this now, the side by side, entering into the water together. When I read this text historically, I'd always think more in the sense that, I don't know, um, and I, there's nothing wrong with this, but here's Philip who has the word of God, the heart of God. He's coming to proclaim the scriptures to the eunuch. Isn't he a great gift here? But what I, what I see this go round is that what God is going to do here, this is not just for the eunuch. It is not just that the eunuch needs the presence of God at work in Philip's life. Philip needs to see God and encounter God in a way that is not possible without this eunuch. Philip is going to learn things, to see things about who God is and what God is up to that he would have never had the capacity to see before if he would have not been sitting alongside this eunuch. So this is not just about what God wants to reveal to the eunuch, but the way God wants to reveal himself to Philip through this man who in every single category we can think of is different from Philip. He's Ethiopian. He's of a darker skin tone. He's of a different culture. He's of a different ethnicity. He is, once again, someone who, according to Philip's customs and laws, would not consider to be clean. Nothing about these two people are alike. 
But the way God always reveals himself to people most profoundly is through the gift of someone else's otherness, which is kind of a mouthful. Maybe I could just say other, but for some reason, for the sake of this sermon, I really like the phrase otherness, and I love this. God reveals himself through the gift of the other. It is through the difference. It it, it is the, the, the difference that comes from being with someone of a varied, of different race, different perspective, different worldview. It, it, it's that difference and distinction that brings the kind of disruption that makes us ready for God to speak. It's the disruption that comes as a result of difference. I feel so preachy right now, all this alliteration. The power of prayer, the promise of prayer. A plethora of prayer, you know, we love these things. I'm doing all this. But it is, it's, it really, it's the, it's, the, it's the difference that brings the disruption that then makes room for the Spirit. This is how God always works. And I've been struck, especially this week, um, I think for a lot of different reasons with things going on culturally that we'll talk about, at just how easy it's become, especially for those of us, and I do believe this, all the more for those of us who are a product of the church in America to become so insulated with people who think like we do, dress like we do, talk like we do, listen to the same music, like the same things, um, have all the same politics, just how easy it becomes for us to insulate ourselves so there is no possibility whatsoever that God could ever surprise us because there is no otherness. There is no place for the other. We like uh, so many within Jewish culture in Philip's day, we already know the scripture. We've already figured out the law. We know what it says. We can quote Deuteronomy 23. We, we, we've already, we have all this figured out. We have life figured out. We have God figured out. We have society figured out. We have culture figured out. And now we're in this really unique place. And I, this was odd, but it just hung with me and wouldn't let go. I'm a, I'm a big basketball fan. Um, as it is in the great state of Oklahoma. We North Carolina people love our college basketball. I grew up a big fan. You know, Carolina and Duke is one of the biggest rivalries in college sports, and I grew up a big Carolina fan. While I'm not athletic at all, actually, I'm just big. I went to Dean Smith's basketball camps. It's true, really. It's not like false humility. Uh, You know, love. And so as it is with all good Carolina fans, I absolutely hated Duke. I mean, like hated Duke. Everyone, everyone does, right? And I, I hated those championship teams in the 90s and all that until later in life I got admitted to Duke Divinity School where I decided I'd been wrong about them all along. I just had a, had a profound conversion experience when I went to Divinity School there. So now I get very excited. Of course, we did win the championship this year, but let's not talk about that. That's really not what, the, that, that's not what I'm here for. I, I had this particular moment where I'm watching the Final Four. I think this is Duke in Wisconsin. And I'd been watching the game for about 10 minutes where I noted like the commentary to me just seemed strange because it seemed that whenever a Duke player would make a shot, it almost seemed like the commentators were cheering for him, like, like openly, like they were pulling him out. I thought, this, is just, this just feels weird. And finally, after watching for a few minutes, they say, like they're doing this experimental thing where you've got like the, the Duke broadcast on one network and the Wisconsin broadcast on the other network so you get to pick which station you watch and therefore pick the kind of commentary that you want on the game. And I thought to myself, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. I don't want to pick between commentators. I love Duke, but I don't, want, I don't want the commentators cheering for Duke. 
I just want somebody to call the freaking game. You know what I mean? It's a basketball game. Just call it. Tell me what happens. Describe the plays. Give me some analysis. Thank you for that. Give me some analysis. Give me some breakdown. Like, I don't, this is supposed to be simple. I don't want to have to pick which telecast I'm, that I want to watch. But this is how all culture works right now. Not just with basketball, but with news. We all get to pick our own news. Isn't that a delightful phenomenon? There, would, there is no way if I took a poll in the room that there would be a remote consensus on one trustworthy news source that everybody here would agree on. It would not happen. It's not like everybody gets around the TV and watches 60 Minutes once a week and, you know, well, we, well, we know 60 Minutes tells the truth. No, no, every, everybody has a different narrative about which kind of news is right. And the conservative folks say that the Hollywood liberals own this news and the liberal folks say that the corporate Republicans have bought out this company. We can't trust what they're saying, right? So now we all get to pick our own news. We get to pick our own news. We get to pick our own basketball commentary. Man, what a wonderful world where we get to decide what it is that we think about how the world works. We get to decide what we think about how culture works. We get to decide what we think about who God is and what God is like. And if we so choose, we can make sure that we never have to encounter a different perspective. And who would not choose that? We can, we, we can stack up. We can make sure that all the news we will ever hear will agree with the perspective and worldview that we have previously decided is right. And when you put that together with a Protestant church culture where, now, and think about this, there are now over 44,000 denominations, Christian denominations in the world. 44,000. We don't even think this is weird anymore. 44,000. How do you get to 44,000 churches? That's an awful lot of church splits, my friends. That means every few minutes somewhere, someone just decided their church went too conservative or their church went too liberal. They, someone has just decided that the church is not right about sanctification or baptism or abortion or something or another, and they go down the street to make it right, and that lasts for a few minutes until people don't like what the pastor says. That, by the way, there's statistics to back this up. In America, the number one reason that people leave a church is because they don't like something that's said in a sermon. Now, in fairness, I know sometimes some pretty horrible things are said in sermons, but when you follow this all the way out, right, so... We get to pick our news. We get to pick our basketball commentary. We get to pick our church. We get to pick our pastor. So the very moment that something is said or done that might challenge our perspective, oh, I'm out of there. Because I already knew what the answers are before I ever came, and they're not agreeing with my answers. I'm just throwing this out as a question, by the way. This is just kind of a footnote. If you don't expect to ever get challenged when you come to church, if you don't expect your, your, your perspective or worldview to ever get challenged, why come at all? Like, why not just sit around your house in your underwear, have a little Bible study with yourself, have the first church of you and Jesus, sing a couple choruses, know what you'll never have to, you'll never have to disagree. You'll always agree with yourself. I don't, actually, I don't know. I don't always agree with myself anyway, but you know what I'm saying. It's like a lot of unity in that. Like, there's no difference. There's no otherness. No perspective ever gets challenged. See, my, my concern in all of this is that we worship a God who always moves through disruption and who always presents himself in ways that will, that will change us 
through the gift of someone else's otherness. That God works through the differences. That God works through the turmoil that we're so desperately trying to avoid. We want to ensure that we're in an environment where there is no chaos because if people disagree, huh. if, I mean, if, we, if we have to talk openly about things that we don't know how we feel about, well, things could get messy. See, it's only in messiness and chaos that the Holy Spirit is able to work. We sung about this this morning. God creates beautiful things out of chaos. It's out of the chaos that God calls creation into existence. Where there is no chaos, there is no creation. There is no new life. There is no new beginning. So when you order your world in such a way as to ensure there will never be chaos, there will never be difference, there will never be a, a, a challenge to your perspective in some way, you eliminate the possibility that God might surprise you. I don't mean to say this in a way that sounds dramatic, but if I ever get to a place where God can no longer surprise me, I, like that is the day I want to check out, like, like take me out of this game, right? If God can no longer surprise us, if God is not able to do anything new in us anymore, I, I think so often of the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, we see in part and we prophesy in part. We see through a glass darkly. I believe in the authority of scripture, but I'm also very aware that my understanding of these texts is partial at best. It is incomplete at best. There are all kinds of things I'm wrong about, and I don't know that I'm wrong about them yet. Isn't that sweet? That's what really makes this interesting. I know, you know if, you're, if you're looking for a perfectly trustworthy theology, yeah, I can tell you right now, I'm wrong about a lot of stuff. I just don't know yet what those things are. And the problem is, God is always revealing these things as we go. That, that's the nature of what it means to have a life with God, is that through the disruption and through the gift of a different perspective, a different person, the, the, the gift of, of someone else who kind of causes this kind of crisis in us, God is teaching us, God is revealing himself to us. If, if, if we're open to this kind of thing, if we're not closed, there's so much I could say about this. What, what, I, what I'm fascinated by these days is just, I don't know, I just look at my life where, well, I'll put it like this. When I first read this text, right? I was in my early 20s, and it, I really believe it changed my life. It was about the same time that I was studying Acts chapter 8, where my best friend from high school, who was an African-American female, her father was dying of AIDS, and I ended up being there for the last few days when he died. I'm not going to go into that whole story um, today, but it was a profound experience in my life. Uh, the man's name was Harold, and in every way, culturally, he was different from me. Um, it, it, everything about our worlds were just so different. And I think that it was in those three days round the clock being in the hospital that for the first time I realized how small my world was, how small my understanding of suffering and pain was, how narrow my cultural filter really, like all of that called, was called into question. I was middle class white kid going into ministry who had this very, very narrow view of the world and just had, just had no idea about anything really and had no idea and, and, and so all of this was stirred up and I remember like when this happened it was so transformative for me I was reading this text from Acts chapter 8 and I truly believed that this was my Ethiopian eunuch encounter like this was that place where like it was for Philip not only that again the eunuch needs 
the work of God that's taking place in his life. But Philip needs this eunuch. Philip needs the revelation of God that he can only have through this encounter. That was happening for me. And the, the, where I think this became a little bit troubling is that that kind of became my story. That was my deal. So whenever I had an opportunity to preach, this is again my early 20s, first started preaching, and I preached this sermon everywhere I went. I always talked about the eunuch, and I talked about Harold, and I was making the comparisons with Levitical law and all that, and I just meant to just preach this thing down. And, and, I, and when I look back over the trajectory of my life since then, the thing that disturbs me most was I almost feel like it's like I got it out of my system from talking about it so much, which is so like us, you know. I went on a mission trip in 1987, and now I understand the world. <laughs> now I understand life, because I can tell you about these eight days that I spent in a third world country, and it just, you know, like you don't, you don't understand the world because you've been in another country for eight days, right? I mean, it's like the this, this challenge, this disruption has to happen over and over again. And now when I look back at life and ministry, especially now having a year since I left the church that I'd founded and pastored, I look back and I see just how insulated that world became. And even as the guy who ideologically would champion the eunuch and would tell the story about Harold, my life just became like anybody else's life who's in ministry. Pastors hang out with other pastors. Christian leaders hang out with other Christian leaders. And we connect with people who share our hobbies and our interests and all that, looking just like everybody else. That, by the way, is another thing that's brutally consistent in our culture right now, is that it's always about having the right ideas. I don't think I've said this in any other um, services, and I hope you can hear this in the spirit in which it's said. What you believe if you're defining belief as what you think about much of anything, really doesn't matter. It just doesn't. You know, I think believing in terms of believing in Jesus the way that the Gospels talk about is a much, is a deeper thing than thinking. But I just think like for us, conservative, liberal, whatever the worldview, so much stock is put on having the right ideas about life and the world. And having the right ideas just doesn't matter that much. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anybody. The gospel is never about encountering the right ideas. It's always about face-to-face -face encounters with people, side-by-side -side in a chariot, where then we are disrupted in such a way where the Holy Spirit can bring revelation. You know, that, that, that's what this is about. It's, never, it's always about the face-to-face. -face. It's always about the one-on-one. -on -one. It's always the life that's lived in the trenches where God does the most profound work. If we insulate ourselves into a bubble where we're guaranteed to only hear from people that we know already agree with us, think like us, dress like us, act like us, we create a very dangerous world where, again, God is no longer able to surprise. And I think that's a truly frightening place to be because that world that we build where God cannot surprise us, is a that's a world where there is no spirit that's a world where there is no life. That's a world in which we constantly reinforce one another's opinions and pat each other on the back and say amen. I don't, I don't, want, to get, I don't want to rant about everything today. These, all these sermons have been a little free-flowing, but it's like, I, I'm amazed. Sometimes I'll, I'll hear sermons that sometimes will be described as being like super bold and like, oh man, he's really telling it like it is. He's telling the truth. I'm like, here's someone standing up in a room ranting about those other people out there who he does not know. None of these people go to church here. 
and everybody stands their feet and claps and says this awesome thing. That's not bold. Like, how, much, how tough is that? Wow. You're saying things that would never get you in trouble in this room, you know? It's the, that's not that hard to do. Everybody likes to have the other. Everybody needs an outsider so that we can feel good about being the insiders. Everybody needs a eunuch so we can say, it's all their fault. It's not my fault. We love that kind of blaming and scapegoating. It makes us feel great to feel like we're the holy separate, clean people who uniquely grasp God's revelation. The trouble is, the very moment that we start to move into that, we're moving into a world where there is no dependence on the Spirit, where there is no opportunity for newness, there is no opportunity for the Spirit of God to break in and disrupt things. I need to wind this down, but one of the things um, that I've really had to sit with this week as I've watched and read so many things about Baltimore. I mean, it's like, I can't even describe the level of grief I felt about that. And uh, I think in many cases, just, just things I don't really feel like I have words for. And I think the more that we've had these kinds of stories in the last few months, the more I just kind of feel the weight of that. And I don't know, it just all makes me feel dumber because I realize how little about the world I really understand, how much brokenness there is that we just don't know how to fix. Uh, it, it felt like in the days following, it's like first I felt so much grief about the images I was seeing, but then I had another reaction where, you know, just here, just bit by bit, I'm looking at social media, and you know how it goes whenever there's anything of kind of a crisis in our nation now, then we all get to play armchair quarterbacks and Everybody gets to say, well, this is what's wrong, and this is how you fix this, and whatever. Like we know, right? And everybody, everybody's speculating about what could be different, what could be better, whatever. Well, it's just this, if we could just do this or that. And I, I don't know, I've just felt like there's been such a quiet to settle in on me this week. Because for as, as little as I would claim to know about how any of that works or how it should be fixed, I do think at the very least what we're seeing in Baltimore is this. The end result of what happens when we have no sense of responsibility or kinship with people who live on another side of town, with people who are part of another culture, when there's a sense that the folks living over here don't have anything to do with my life, and there's no sense of um, the the way that the gospel calls us to carry our brothers and sisters, like this is what that kind of world looks like. And in some ways, I felt like the things I was seeing on social media were just an extension of that in a national forum where everybody's still shouting out their proposed answers and solutions, and everybody's proclaiming their worldview. But we're just so bad at, at, at getting to the kind of moment where we sit down in the chariot, side by side, face to face, and we're able to listen and hear what God's Spirit might be doing in someone who's very other than us. I'm convinced the only hope we have for healing and change on a national level, on any level, within a church, within a community, is when we once again get to a place where we make room for this kind of disruption, where we make room for the other, where we're not so afraid of, of the challenge that will come if we have to engage someone or something that's different. I just feel like now more than ever before, we're just in a society where we are so ruled by fear. We are so scared to death 
of somebody else rubbing off on us. We're so scared to death of difference. We're so scared to death of otherness. Scared to death of the only thing where, we have, where God has the capacity then to pull these resources to bring new life, and we're frightened. I would think the people of God would be the, 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 the folks who, above all else, would have nothing to be afraid of ever from anybody's otherness. There's never a reason to be afraid. There's never a reason to be scared. Well, actually, no, I don't know if I really want to say that quite that way, because here's the thing. I don't think you have anything to be afraid of from the other. I don't think we have anything to be afraid of from the Ethiopian eunuch. I don't think we have anything to be afraid of from this sermon. You should be very afraid of God in this way, because I promise you, he wants to utterly disrupt your life. And for those of you that have a sense that the reason that you read the Bible and that you come to know things about Jesus is so your life gets more neat and ordered and secure and stable, oh, no, 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 it works in the exact opposite direction. You think that the world is more ordered than it actually is. You think that everything is more neat and tidy than it actually is. The job of Scripture is not to bring you safety and comfort. The job of Scripture and worship is to bring the kind of disruption that would bring with it the possibility that the Spirit of God might move and speak in us. God doesn't want to order your world. God wants to disorder your world. God doesn't want to, God doesn't want to just affirm all the... Is anybody hearing me? Or y'all are not sure how you're feeling about this? 11 o'clock, we got all the... No, thank you. That's, that's, that's okay. Y'all just seem so uncertain. And I'm just feeling so naked up here. But it's okay. Because you already got in mind. The other that you're... Well, I hope, I hope you're not talking about that. I hope you're not. Well, I'm not going to. See, you're already doing that. And that's the trouble. So long as you're already. This is why God is not able to work in us in surprising ways. Because we've already decided what we think. We've already decided who we're supposed to be afraid of. Man, I'm preaching too long. I'm shutting this thing down. I promise. This is. I'm telling you that where there is no disruption, there is no dependency on the Spirit for God to bring life that's new. And I think, I just feel like in my journey at least, I've gotten so bored to tears with, so you build a, so you build a big church. Well, what does that really mean, right? So you do, a, um, so you do this and that kind of ministry. What, is, what does all this really mean? I mean, I just think that the good stuff always happens through the surprises and the disruption. And I'm so hungry for, to, to, to see us as the people of God embrace that. And, 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 and be ready for anything. And, and, to, and how about this? To do something, to speak a better word over our culture than these silly sound boy, bites that fly back and forth. And instead of like picking between Duke and Wisconsin commentary, wouldn't it be great to choose uh, uh, the, the word of God that's altogether other and different that rises above all of that? Like, does that sound good to anybody else with that? I just like... I, sometimes I, I'm a nonviolent person. I have deep convictions about nonviolence in the gospel, but here's the stuff that makes me want to hit people in the face. Like, I just, I get so sick and tired of, in, among church communities, all the talk about conservative, liberal, blah, blah, blah. Conservative and liberal are not theological categories. They're not <laughs> biblical words. Right and left are not biblical words. The, the people of God are attempting to discern what is faithful or unfaithful. But that, that, that language has no place here. Who cares how the culture labels it? 
then we get scared to death to say anything meaningful about anything because we're afraid that people in our own tribe will turn on us. And like, no, we're, The people of God are called to bring a word that is other, that is different, that we can only get if we allow ourselves to be with people that are different, that will change our perspective, that will challenge our worldview. Stand with me, please, or I'll do this all day. God wants to bring disruption. Not for the sake of then you wallowing in chaos, but so that it creates the possibility for something new. And I'm just wondering where and how right now in your life that God is wanting to send you out from the place that you're in. To send you out from the place that you're comfortable. To, to, away from the safety of ideas. Away from that cocoon that we weave for ourselves where everybody thinks the same, talks the same or whatever and wants to, wants, wants to send you out into a place that's different among a people that's different, that God wants to reveal himself to you in a way that might surprise you, that God wants to reveal himself through a people that might surprise you, that God wants to make himself known in a way that was not for, I know, I know, I know, it's hard to believe, but Maybe, just maybe, we have it figured out all there is to know about scripture and God and life and society and culture. Wouldn't that be crazy if we don't already have all the answers? And maybe there's more that God wants to reveal that God wants to see. Let me pray for you, then we'll come to the table. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.